Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about Star Trek, the 2009 film directed by J.J. Abrams, written by Roberto Orci and Alex Kurtzman. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. Good lens flares. <laughs> and Alex Cayotos. Hi. Okay, so we are continuing our kind of accidental trek through the film year 2009, <laughs> uh, where two weeks ago we did an episode on Up in the Air, uh, which we kind of talked about as being like the last 90s film almost, where mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's a drama, it's a rom-com, it's just like, it's a normal movie, like whatever Groundhog Day was it was doing that. Uh, and we stopped making those movies in 2009. Um, but what we started doing in 2009 was this kind of soft reboot thing where they decided we're going to make a new Star Trek film. It's going to have the original characters from the original TV show. And it's still going to feature like an old version of some of those characters, but we're going to recast it. It's like new people playing the younger versions of themselves, but it's not entirely outside of the world of the original. It was like a whole new experiment thing. And we can dive into the, the details of how they tried to navigate all of that. But it was really interesting revisiting this film because I was kind of obsessed with it when it came out. Uh, Alex and I are Star Trek fans. Uh, but we both come at Star Trek from slightly different angles a little bit, uh, which we'll talk about. But it was really exciting to see, OK, a big budget sci-fi space movie that hadn't happened in a while. Like, I think yeah. that was kind of a new, not new, but yeah, there had been a drought mm -hmm. in like big budget sci-fi. And so that it was Star Trek. JJ directing, they're going to put money into spaceships doing stuff. I was just really excited about all of that. So yeah, so there's a lot of really interesting things to talk about this film as far as, yeah, creating this kind of soft reboot thing. JJ essentially practicing for Star Wars uh -huh. in a way that <laughs> became <time>. yeah, far <laughs> more literal than probably anyone expected. Um, and just JJ's style, I want to talk about mm -hmm. all that stuff, but... Uh, but let's start with kind of all of our like relationships with Star Trek. So, Alex, you are the red shirt currently. Red shirt. Why don't you tell us uh, about your relationship with Star Trek? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I grew up with Star Trek, but I didn't grow up with the original series. I didn't grow up with Kirk and Spock. I grew up with Next Generation, which is the Patrick Stewart, Jean-Luc Picard uh, enterprise. And, uh, and so that was, I mean, I watched that every week with my mom. Like that was like our show we watched together all through the nineties. Um, after that moved on to Star Trek Voyager, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, like the whole nineties era of Star Trek, I was like deeply immersed in. And so, and it was really, it really formed a lot of my ideas of like what I want from sci-fi, uh, and just what I like about the genre because, uh, through those shows, they could explore all these different themes and ideas and kind of political allegory. Uh, and, but there's also just fun, nerdy stuff, you know, fun what if questions. There's things like the Borg, which is a cybernetic race that just goes and assimilates other races into their you know machine 
you know, hive mind. Hive mind. Um, yeah. It's just really cool sci-fi stuff, you know? So, and, and it was just, you know, week after week, you get all these what if scenarios and, and this, these casts of characters, the crews of the ships that you fall in love with, um, which is probably why, you know, I got, got obsessed with Mass Effect, which is very much, uh, you know, it's a video game kind of version of a crew you fall in love with going on adventures. Um, so, yeah. So basically my relationship with Star Trek is actually post original series, post spock and kirk and so it was interesting to go into this movie not really being actually a hardcore fan of this star trek but being a fan of all the later star treks um and so we can talk about that uh and how that like made for an interesting viewing experience um but yeah that that's where i come at star trek from is for this next generation that era and and you know those movies are like you know, the Patrick Stewart Star Trek movies are the Star Trek movies I want to go see in theaters and, mm-hmm. you know, are my idea of like what I want from a Star Trek thing. Uh, and, and this is very different. Uh-huh. <laughs> it is. Yeah. It is very different. Yeah. Well, so there is yeah, a lot of overlap there where Next Generation was also the Star Trek that I watched uh, all the time on TV with my mother also. Uh, so, yeah, also loved the Next Gen crew. Um but my parents had also showed me like some episodes of the original Star Trek and some of like those movies because those were the movies and the Star Trek that they knew that they watched. And so I knew enough of the original crew to be able to like recognize them of like, oh, that person, that's Bones. And like, oh, yeah, beat me up, Scotty. Like, I know those people um, mostly from the whale movie. Uh, if yeah. anyone knows the Star Trek the four. Like... Yeah. <clears throat> right. Yeah. Yeah, that was probably the original Star Trek thing I watched the most. Um, But yeah, so it was exciting, but also, as you said, it's a very different uh, Star Trek movie, and we'll we'll get into all of that. Um, Brian, I'm curious about you and your relationship with Star Trek. Yeah, kind of, kind of somewhere in the middle um, between the sort of avid Alex fan and the, um, you know, basically most casual uh which was like i watched a lot of next generation um as a kid sort of teenager like whatever time that was and not like week weekly like alex but i i remember watching a lot of it but i don't think i like actually made a plan to watch it ever it was just i watched a lot of tv and that was one of the things i enjoyed watching (laughs) um and uh, and yeah definitely knew like the original show by you know, sort of by osmosis, right? Like you just, you know, all the references, you know, this kind of thing. Um, And then in, I think like right when I moved to California, for some reason, I just decided on a weekend to watch all 10 movies. Uh, So... (laughs) That's like a Brian thing to do. I was going to say the most Brian thing to do ever. It's like, I'm going to watch all the Jaws's today. I'm going to watch all the Aliens. I'm going to watch all the Star Trek. But you could spread them out. I mean, just as a... Well, that's no fun. Then then it feels like homework. It's just like... Then you're a weirdo. (laughs) Okay. Okay. (laughs) I don't don't want to watch like all the Jaws movies for like weeks. I want to watch them all in one day. Uh, wow. I know we don't talk about the other Jaws movies, but I did do that once. Um, uh, but uh, but yeah, so I just got like a really good everything, you know, from obviously like Star Trek, the motion picture all the way through to Nemesis, like those those two crews and how they sort of cross over in the movies and everything. Um, and that happened to be. I think maybe two years before this movie came out. So it was kind of, I don't think I even knew this movie was in production necessarily, but it was just good timing. So that when, by the time this movie came out, it's like, I still, I'm not going to catch every single reference. I saw this movie 
in a theater with a friend who knew the original series really well. So he would tell me all the little like, oh, that quote meant this. And and this was a reference to that. I'm like, oh, that's cool. I'm glad I didn't need to know that to appreciate the movie, but I'm glad that you appreciated the movie on this like extra level. Um, so yeah, I've always enjoyed it as a, as a thing, as a franchise, but there's a lot of it. And, you know, so I have not, there's a lot of it I haven't seen and there's a lot of it I have seen. Yeah. There is definitely a lot of yep. that, that is for sure. And it has at this point taken so many different forms. It's it's a really interesting series. But yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that in the movies, they like crossed over also because Star Trek Generations yeah. was like so much fun where it's like both the captains, uh-huh. Picard and Kirk, and they're like fighting the guy from that movie. Um, anyway. Malcolm McDowell. <laughs> Orange, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That movie. That guy from that yeah. movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. Okay. And Trisha, what about you? Oh, there's so little to say. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, I have seen the second Star Trek movie, which is the one with Khan. The Wrath of Khan. Nice. I saw that recently. That's the only Star Trek movie I've ever seen other than like the, these new ones that JJ made. Um, and I did like the Khan one. That was a good one. Um, and then... I think I saw three to four episodes of the original series when I was 12-ish uh, <laughs> on like a Thanksgiving Day marathon on TV, maybe. And it was on at my cousin's house, I think. And I was Let like, is this a Star Trek? Am I watching a Star Trek now? And I think I kind of watched it for like an hour or two. Was one of the episodes The Trouble with Tribbles? Because that's the one they show like all the time. The one where they get all the little furry right. creatures. It was a long time ago. You may not remember. I don't think so. Okay. I don't think I saw the okay. one. I think you'd remember. Yeah, it's that, memorable. No, I don't think so. Listen, there was a lot that I thought I would remember is the point. Because <laughs> I was pretty sure that I had seen this movie when it came out. Because I know for sure that like earlier this year, I watched or or late last year, I know that I watched Star Trek Into Darkness and Star Trek Beyond again, basically back to back. And I was like, for sure that I'd seen Star Trek. So I skipped it and I was like, oh, I know I've seen that one. I'll just go watch these other two. And I... I think I had seen Into Darkness already, so I rewatched that, and then I thought I had saw seen Beyond, and I hadn't, and I was like, none of this makes any sense to me. What's happening in Beyond? <laughs> and then I went back and watched this one in preparation for this podcast, and I didn't remember any of it. So, <laughs> in conclusion, I'm an expert, and I will be teaching you all about Star Trek today. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, yeah, no, I'm just I'm just here to learn from all of you. I'm not. I I don't know where I am exactly. Um, the final frontier, yeah. aren't I? Something like that. Well, you are uh, one of yeah. the main target audiences for this first. Movie. Right. That's what yeah. I was thinking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so also, it's, it's good to have a newbie on board. Yes. Yeah. And one thing I do want to talk about with this movie, we don't have to get into it right away, but. It appealed to me very deeply uh, as a massive fan of like naval like uh, battles Mm. and things um, like historical, Mm. you know, um, yeah, ship battles and all of that stuff because and also submarine movies, because those things are all about like. I outrank you, so I get to make this decision on behalf of the Armada. And that's what this movie is all about. And so, and I'm all about that stuff. I'm all about like, oh, you 
that's insubordination and now you have to do this and like i love that stuff <laughs> like i love like the hierarchy of being on a ship and and or on a submarine um so super into that aspect of this and i if that's a if that is a hallmark of all star trek things sign me up <laughs> I was going to say, actually, one of the writers, I think, in one of the special features refers to the type of battle in Star Trek movies as submarine battles. Yeah. It's kind of like a slower moving. This movie tries to speed it up with like insane <laughs> right. cinematography where you're like on the photon torpedo as it like flies at the ship. But in in classic like next generation Star Trek or these the things that I grew up on, they're like slow battles with strategy and like. We're just out of range. Should we get within range? You know, it's it's all about that kind of stuff. Well, and they were loading literal torpedoes. I was like, oh, yeah. Right. But why would they be, you know, like in Star Wars, everything's lasers or whatever. And so they're like, we're going to actually load ballistics. They're like, real missiles. <laughs> sure. Of course. Put those in that tube and launch them at that person. And then also like, yeah, there was a minute where one of the characters went over and they were listening really carefully on their headset to the dialect mm -hmm. of whatever. And I was like, mm -hmm. yeah, that's, that's some submarine stuff. I love that where they have to listen super carefully to the, the sonar and whatever. So, uh, yeah, that's a great aspect of this series or this film in particular, as far as I'm concerned. I feel like we have to talk about the hunt for October. Yes. Let's do it. Maybe immediately after I'm going to think about it. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so it's really fascinating because, yeah, there, there are all those Star Trekky things that this movie seems so kind of ashamed of in some ways to have to deal with, or like, <laughs> like what is the ashamed is too strong a word. Yeah. But how do we take this slow, thoughtful, methodical thing and shake it and <laughs> sprinkle it with lens flares and play it as loud as possible and turn it into an action movie? And I know that that was uh, off-putting to a lot of Star Trek fans. I feel like, for me, though, this film is largely successful in being a cool action yeah. movie and using the Star Trek thing to do that. So it kind of is in this weird place where at first I'm like, ah, blasphemy, but I love it. Yeah, this was right. a really fun ride at the same time. Uh, and I think there's a lot of interesting things in the script and in the filmmaking that go a long way to making that happen that I definitely want to uh, dive in and talk about perhaps starting with the opening of the movie, which is to me bonkers. If you were to just <laughs> read that on the page, like if someone told me, well, the opening is like, there's a space battle and Thor has to take over <laughs> as captain and he has to maneuver the ship and a suicide run while his wife is literally giving right. birth at that moment to his son. And their final moments are like set of like, it's so melodramatic, but it works every time for me. Like it's no, still worked. For I me get like choked up like, in this really melodramatic <laughs> opening. Like every time, like, like the, all the trickery works, like the going silent with the music and the, you know, the timing of their final moments. Uh, I, yeah. Sorry to interrupt you, but I, the opening no, yeah. of this movie like really works for me. And it, I think it's a, a great example of what J.J. Abrams does best, which is just, you know, take the, the most primal, archetypal, familial relationship feelings injected into this like genre, incredibly intense situation and just milk it for all it's worth uh, and just you know put it all together beautifully. You know, he did it in Mission Impossible 3 
um, in a similar way. Uh, but I think, yeah, the opening of this movie is such a high point for me that it almost like it never quite gets back there. Like, like I, like I want that, mm. like the feelings I have in the opening of this movie, I want to be at the climax of a movie, mm. but it's just like, it's almost like it's all blown in the first 10 minutes or whatever. <laughs> uh, but, but we can you know talk about that. Well, it also does, you know, so much work for the rest of the movie, right? Cause you're introducing yeah. Kirk obviously and, and sort of his, not his origin story necessarily, but I mean, I guess his literal origin story. Um, yeah. But then you are also introducing the the villains and the the time hole, you know, the wormhole, the time <laughs> right. stuff, time hole. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's like, it's like, yeah, it's a lot to sort of buy that it's all happening at once, like the, these crazy coincidences or whatever. But once you do all that, then now the rest of the movie is just sort of like, like you know resting on the laurels of the of the the setup that that first that the opening has done yeah. yeah and i fully agree with you alex that this is where i love to see jj doing work because i do think it is what he does really well is dig into family relationships and other kinds of like uh yeah critical like relationships that are incredibly universal and relatable right and so like you know i think a lot of people forget because of who jj is now that like his you know felicity is like sort of where he (laughs) started um but when he's at his very best something like mission impossible 3 right it digs into this like if you wanted to settle down ethan hunt what would happen what could the consequences be to the people you care about and like digs into that personal question for the character and one of my favorite jj things ever is this tv show alias and alias was an entire spy show that was built around like what if you found out your dad was also a spy? Like that's basically the whole premise of the TV show alias. And the central relationship is about a father and a daughter who are both spies. Um, And if you haven't watched that show, you really should. It's great. But yeah, it's when that's the like emotional backdrop of what you have going on, then your plot takes on automatically so much weight like we're gonna care about everything from that point forward because we understand as you're pointing out brian what it means not just in terms of the plot but in terms of the character and so like kirk will never live up to it and um by the way we're gonna tell you that a few more times but but we are gonna (laughs) tell you it right out front too yeah yeah there's there's not there's no subtlety in any of this it's like but I think that's why, yeah, there's something about J.J.'s filmmaking that is special. And I think especially early on, he was compared a lot to Spielberg. And I feel like that's maybe one of the yeah. similar things where it's like there's a big red emotion button that we can construct <laughs> out of, like you're saying, familial relationships and all these like core things that are going to have an emotional reaction or yeah, create an emotional reaction for people. And rather than like shy away from it or kind of stand you know, on hoity-toitiness of like, oh, we're subtext. Well, people will extract meaning from it. They're just like, fire the torpedoes at the red button. <laughs> like, hit the button. Hit it yep. As hard as possible. Yeah. Uh, Smash the button. Yeah. <laughs> this opening does that. Two, also, I think, like, Chris Hemsworth's performance yeah. is cheating mm-hmm. also. So I love him in this movie. Yeah. He's so great. Like, this is one of those things where I remember sitting in a theater 
and within within minutes being like who is this person to the end of it being like who was this person mm -hmm. and then it not being like surprising at all that he went on to be thor and uber famous and all that stuff um so yeah so i i really appreciate all these aspects of jj's filmmaking that we're talking about and it's also, you know, so we have to talk about lens flares yep. at some point. <laughs> so why don't we just drag them into the conversation here? <laughs> Where like there is something really cool about the lens flare. Like I, I like I feel like lens flare can be a, a symbol almost for JJ's uh, filmmaking where it's bright and it's in your face. And when it's working, it is doing something cool, but like over-reliance on it. And when that's the only thing that you can see in the frame that's when it's like this is no longer you know the the shine and the hitting the big red button is really effective but at some point you have to back that up with like substance and like nail kind of an ending and a finale mm -hmm. and that doesn't always happen i feel like in in some of these films mm. at least there's no shot like an into darkness where we're on a close-up of a woman's face and she just completely disappears behind like four levels of like blue flare <laughs> just like right. like this is a personal moment of this woman moment. like dealing with her father being a horrible person and you've just hidden her performance behind <laughs> multiple flares wow <laughs> at least in this movie it's mostly like spaceships and cool things are happening when people when things are hidden behind flares right right yeah i, th I think part of the question is you know what because because there's not just lens flares there's also the like spinny around the camera style oh, yeah. and, angles and everything yeah. everything is very close up a lot of the time you know in a way that i feel like could i, I want to pull back a little bit at times and i want to be able to see t two people in the shot at once and but i think that it's interesting to notice when it's distracting and when it works you know so right. uh so thinking about the like spinny around the camera stuff when Spock is standing before the council, you know, to what disability are you referring or whatever? And the camera for no reason just like spins in and like goes around him and stuff. I'm like, that's not doing anything thematic. It's not. It's just like, look, we're in a new place and it's strange. So like, look how different this is. But when people are running down the hall, I can do this. I can do this. Right. And the camera's like moving <laughs> yeah, around, yeah. like the camera's trying to get out of the way of the person running. I feel like, OK, now your style is actually adding something uh, to the scene, right? And and the lens flare thing is interesting because, because this is a spectacle movie, right? We are sure. looking at these big ships and, and things like that. So when there are a lot of times where the lens flare just adds an extra thing, an extra piece of eye candy, right? When there's mm -hmm. stuff going on. And there are other times, like you talk about, like you're talking about Alex, where it's like, well, now I'm distracted by, by your lens flare, you know? And I think that's like a... If you're talking about like style over substance, right? Like this is a good example of of both. Like like sometimes it works really well and it and it adds to the thing, and sometimes it just it detracts from the thing and distracts from the thing uh, because now I am not paying as much attention to the story and the characters as I am to the like stylistic choice that you made for a reason I can't I can't figure out. Yeah, right. One that I'm glad you brought up the like the spinny camera e stuff also because that is a, another trademark of JJ's that I think people don't pay attention to as much. But there are a lot of scenes that you know are like one page scenes that could be shot and just you know Spock enters and he says a thing to Ahura, cut to Ahura, she says something back, cut back, shot reverse shot. That was the scene, but instead it's like steady cam we come out of the elevator with him and then we like swing by the close-up of 
the navigator who has a one line so that we can spin around to catch her just as she says her thing to land in the perfect close-up for the point of the scene. And some of the time that works super, super well. And I think that you don't notice it when it is working so well because it just it's giving this momentum and energy to the story that feels appropriate. But like you're saying, Brian, there are these moments where when it's not working, it's detracting from the experience. And that's when you notice it. And usually you're noticing it also because there's someone standing off camera, shining a flashlight into the lens, <laughs> making it flare out so you right. can't see what's happening. <laughs> I love it. They're in the ice cave. They're like, we're literally in a cave and there's a lens flare. <laughs> yeah. um, where is it coming from? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, and, and I, you know, as someone who is probably of, of all of the four of us least tuned in to like technical style, if we want to put it that way, we're like, I'm going to miss 60% of like camera moves the first time I watch something because I'm just tracking with the characters. Right. So I'm just like, Mm -hmm. what is this person going to say? That's all I care about in this scene. That's all my brain has room for. Um, or like, what does this mean for their arc? Um, unless the, unless the style is something is also like, you know, doing something thematic, right. Or, or doing something for the character. Um, so I will say that, you know, as the movie started, and especially because it is a science fiction space movie, and the bulk of the lens flares are outside, and and by that I mean in space, <laughs> I didn't bump the on them. Outside. I really didn't bump on them. Mm-hmm. And I would bet money that your average moviegoer, like, wouldn't have either up until it gets a little bit deeper into the movie, right? Like, because the movie starts off, like, with it hits the ground running. Um, or driving really fast in this case. And it, it really just, just zips you along. Um, at least with, in terms of like the central story of this movie, which is a Kirk and Spock sort of romance. Um, and that is the real arc of this movie, right? Like, uh, and it's also like, how did the enterprise get its crew? Um, that's kind of the, the main thrust of the story of the film. Um, there's also Romulans who cares? No one, this movie doesn't, (laughs) um, (laughs) generic revenge villain. It's like, wow. Anyway, well, we can circle back to them, but it's interesting that, you know, normally we talk about like, okay, do a little character scene to tell us who your central characters are. This has like five of them stacked one on top of the other. Here's baby Kirk. Here's kid Kirk. Here's kid Spock. Here's mm. adult Spock. Here's adult Kirk. Here's adult Kirk again. Like here's adulter all, Spock. And all of them, <laughs> and all of them could be like incredibly boring. Um, you know, just like uh, I'm going to tell you my life philosophy kinds of scenes, but they're not. They're mm. action packed, and they are really interesting and and exciting to watch. And it does feel like the movie is is zooming along, even though what we're essentially plowing through is character scenes for the first 40 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, again, I think that's something that JJ does really well. Like my favorite part of the force awakens is Ray on her planet. Mm -hmm. And we get to watch Ray go through her like day in the life of Ray. Like, I think he's really good at building up characters and establishing their life for these reasons. Like you're saying where it's, it's character backstory, but it's dramatized. It's done in a, entertaining way and a way that is really compelling like by the end of each scene i feel like i i know kirk i feel like i 
I feel the conflict inside of Spock. Maybe that's just me. Also, I think I just kind of relate to Spock in a lot uh-huh. of ways. Uh, but like, I <laughs> you think, don't yeah, say. <laughs> does a really good job of, uh, yeah, like you're saying, establishing where all these characters are coming from, which then pays off in dividends later on because we are invested, and so we there are stakes, even if what they're doing is insane and uh, is hard to track maybe and now they're fighting on a satellite dish that's <laughs> drilling into thing for they're reasons. They're sword fighting on a satellite <laughs> <Yeah>. dish. <laughs> right. But I care for some reason like more than I feel like I should in some of these moments because of I think yeah the investment in the characters and those relationships and what they want and what's driving them like all that stuff that yeah is important and then I think also as part of as you were saying the theme of this this movie is almost about like you know emotionality and when do you hold back and when do you give in to emotion mm-hmm. and go too big and so i think there's probably like on a meta level <laughs> jj's style kind of working with that also so here's a quick little story a bunch of educational-ish youtubers many of whom you probably know were looking for a way to create experimental content without having to please the youtube algorithm gods a way for their audience to directly support their work and at the same time, share that work with their audience ad-free. So this group of YouTubers, including channels such as Patrick H. Willems, Just Write, Like Stories of Old, Game Maker's Toolkit, Thomas Flight, and myself, and many, many more, created Nebula. Nebula is a subscription streaming service where you can support your favorite creators while getting access to a bunch of exclusive content. There are no sponsor spots, and you can access a bunch of bonus content, including extended cuts, companion videos, and interviews that are only found on Nebula. And the best way to get access to Nebula and all this incredible content is definitely through the amazing Curiosity Stream Nebula Bundle deal. With this bundle, you can get full access to both sites for less than $15 a year, which is awesome because you're not only supporting your favorite creators, you're also getting access to the thousands of great documentaries on CuriosityStream. To tie this in with Star Trek, I recommend checking out CuriosityStream's series Beyond the Spotlight. In particular, their episode all about LeVar Burton. Maybe you know him as Jordi LaForge from Star Trek The Next Generation, or maybe as Kunta Kinte from Roots, or maybe as the host of the TV series Reading Rainbow. He's had a fascinating and inspiring life, and this 50-minute episode dives into all of it. So to get access to Nebula and CuriosityStream, head to curiositystream.com screenplay. Once again, that's curiositystream.com screenplay. The link is in the show notes or on screen right now if you're watching on YouTube. Thanks to Curiosity Stream for sponsoring Beyond the Screenplay. Now, back to the episode. Well, I want to hear from Alex and you, I guess, and, and Brian, whoever wants to weigh in here, but especially those that are really familiar with these characters, like that that grew up with them. I, you know, I feel like a good chunk of the movie is just really clever character introductions. And like small but clever character moments that create, um, if not really three-dimensional characters, but the impression of three-dimensional characters for basically every person on the Enterprise. I don't have any frame of reference for them. Um, So they work for me on like a, I just met this person level. Um, I wonder, but I'm very curious to hear how they feel, those little moments feel to people who already know the characters. I'm not the right Star Trek guy because I didn't actually know these characters that well. I mean, I'd, I'd seen a couple of the like original uh, series cast movies, but um, I never really watched that show. So 
this was also kind of an introduction for me to to their things. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like we need like my mom on here. She would know best. But from my <laughs> recollection of of the original cast, you know, I, I don't think they really went into their backstories ever in in the show and in those TV things uh, or movies. So, yeah, my uh, based on my recollection and like talking to like my parents afterward about what they thought, it felt like an authentic, like a believable like origin story for how these people came to be. And I do think that the movie couches it in like this is just one timeline mm. like mm -hmm. maybe this happened differently and other times uh helps with that but yeah my recollection was that it felt like a an authentic enough build up of all these things that it it felt right mm. yeah i mean this movie this movie's trying to do so many things by the way right. like you know and, and yeah. it actually like it's impressive how many things it pulls off it's like it's kind of an adventure and it's kind of a thoughtful star trek movie and it's kind of a comedy at times and like that action comedy type way and it's also i think doing that with this cast where it's trying to make you go hey this is we want you to believe 100 percent this is the cast of the enterprise but also wouldn't it be funny if we cast celebrities to do impressions of these famous characters from this TV show, right? <laughs> so, it, but it's like, it works. So you have, I think Chris Pine is the best example of somebody who's who's really doing both, right? He is just a, a guy playing a guy, but there's still a little Kirk in him, right? Like there's still, he kind of has, like, there's something about him where you go like, yes, you are a young William Shatner. Um, and then, and then you have people like like Spock and and Uhura uh, and Sulu who like their original character. I mean, obviously Spock is like a for many reasons is a, is a character, but but like they don't have like performative things that that we know so well from the original uh, original um, actors. But then you have Scotty and Chekhov, right? Where it's like, oh yeah, these were very colorful, very over the top characters. So now let's cast these, um, let's cast these known actors to do it and kind of try to walk that line of, oh, it's someone kind of doing an impression, but also I believe them. I believe you are really that character, right? Also, Anton Yelchin, I love you. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but then uh, and then I just I love Carl Urban. As as yeah. as bones, you know, just he's, he's doing the damn it gym thing, and like it's just <laughs> this, you know, New Zealish actor, just like completely making <laughs> like making me believe that he is a a reincarnation of the of the bones from the original series. So, you know, and and that is what this movie is, right? It's the it's the the reboot that's also a remake that's also a sequel that's also a prequel because it's doing <laughs> right. all this stuff like it this speaking of hunt for red october each of these movies did a thing that you can only get away with once so hunt for red october does the zoom in on the russian and then it turns to english <laughs> and you pull out and it's like you nailed it you found a way to yep. actually make us believe but now nobody else can do it again right so now <laughs> now you know 30 years later we have the last duel which is a movie of american guys in british accents playing french people um because we still haven't figured out how to like get around that right and then this movie does the reboot thing by saying yeah we're we're totally rebooting this all your favorite actors are now replaced for these characters but it's still like alternate timeline, right? So like Spock still exists. We can do a thing. And it, I thought it was brilliant. Uh, it's it's kooky and it's out there, but I think it works specifically for Star Trek mm. as as a franchise. Right. No, I think 
that was one of the most impressive things about this film from the first viewing was that device because that is a true star trek device that that wasn't just kind of like a i mean maybe it was a desperate thing for this movie but it doesn't feel desperate because mm -hmm. that would happen in an episode of star trek you you would have a wormhole take the ship into another you know timeline where now they're 30 years in the past and they've changed the course of events that's an absolutely a star trek story and to see you know leonard nimoy come back as the original spock and you know be the kind of origin of this new alternate universe is a is a really brilliant way to do the soft reboot um and and it and it, it once again it, it taps into the kind of sci-fi i like it's not it's not just a cheap trick. It's also a fun idea. What would happen if uh, this anomaly occurs that kills off the father of one of the main characters? Like that is a big change in that timeline uh, for Kirk. And how does his difference ripple off into the rest of the universe and change everybody else? Um, so, yeah, I think I think it's just a great, great discovery they made when they found that kind of solution to how the hell do we replace these actors and do a prequel to the original series and somehow not just like ruin star trek for all the hardcore fans but mm. it's like this this is a it, this has a kind of a love and a continuity with the original fandom because of leonard nimoy coming back because of that very star trek device that ties it all together mm. I think they should have just deep faked young Leonard Nimoy's face. <laughs> onto, uh, exactly That's what fans it. really want. <laughs> apparently. But, but it is, it is just to like, to briefly go into like the, you know, the force awakens comparison thing here. Yeah. I feel like what I was wanting from the force awakens was everything you're saying about how Leonard Nimoy is in this. He comes in, he kind of is there to just like softly like touch touch it and steer the <laughs> ship in its direction bless it with yes. you know the original franchises you know magic and then send everybody on their way yes and i feel like that's the i think that's a really good way to do these things if you're going to do them and i appreciated that about this movie yeah I, well. I think this may be one of the most successful of the soft reboot uh, things that we've gotten uh truly just because it it does so much and for all my little quibbles with it, it, it's just it's deeply impressive how many people they were able to reach and not piss off with this movie. You know, you're, you're <laughs> able to bring in new fans yeah. who, who know nothing about Star Trek. You're able to have all these references, like Brian was saying, to the to, for the hardcore fans. You're able to, like, have an in-world story device to, to make it all OK. Uh, so it's just it's it's a pretty remarkable feat to, to pull off what this movie pulls off and um I'd be happy to talk about my quibbles, though, if we want to transition to that at some point. But uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that I yeah, I think for all the good things we're saying, there are definitely some pitfalls uh, that happen. And I think we should address some of those. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll just say real quick that I mentioned on one of our Book of Boba Fett um, Patreon episodes, the sort of right and wrong way to do a reference. Right. And, and the wrong mm -hmm. way is the you better have seen the last thing or else you're going to have no idea who this guy is or what this line means or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and and Star Wars is has done the entire gamut of, of <laughs> the right way and the, and the wrong way. And the I hope you've seen these past, you know, 11 movies kinds of ways. Um, and I think that this movie is just like I don't think there is a, a second in this movie that you have to have seen anything uh, Star Trek related to actually get what's going on. And yet there is a reference every once a minute or something like that. Right. Even 
having right. someone like Pike be a character and the red shirt who, you know, who <laughs> dies immediately before they even hit the ground and and things like Spock is the captain and Spock is with the Hura and things that are like, oh, that's a twist. If you know the original, if you know this, then you understand why this is either a twist or a cameo or a ref. Will Wheaton is the voice of most of the Romulans, <laughs> like all the Romulans who aren't like the main oh, two wow. guys. Um, and, but there's like so much stuff there for the fans but so little of it requires any previous reading from the casual viewer and i think that is that's what i love yeah well and case in point because i knew nothing about any of these characters and or the world the history of any anything anything the spaceships they mean nothing to the planets like romulans cool don't know who those are great vulcan where great like i i knew nothing about any of it and it all still works because it's all on the page right and like they very clearly explained to me oh spock's not supposed to have emotions that's literally the first scene i hear from spock um and so i think that it is a good example for that reason as you guys are pointing out of like how to make something accessible to a lay person. And this goes back to the form of the story, which is, once again, it's this big, broad, accessible, archetypal action thing. Um, because it is so very action-y, or it just uh-huh. acts like it is, even when it's not. Everybody's running. They're running all over the bridge. The camera's whipping all over the bridge. It's like everyone's just talking. But... <laughs> again, they're yeah. punching each other again. Yes. All the yeah. time. The detail that I love that's stuck with me, I think, from the uh, audio commentaries, just JJ talking about how they get the camera to like shake and he's like yes i asked like the camera operator to just shake and it wasn't doing it right so i just stand behind him and just like pat on the (laughs) pat on the camera and like shake it for him and he has to fight against it and that's how you get the really good shake wow (laughs) and i feel like some of the time it's great but i was looking at the scene where pike talks to kirk and the bar and it's just the two of them talking about stuff and the camera looks like it's fighting to just keep everybody in frame and i'm like jj stop hitting the camera it's because it literally is fighting right? yeah exactly yeah. oh yeah. Uh, yeah yeah well i mean so what you're getting at there trisha i think is the, one of the biggest things i bump on in this movie is that it feels like it's trying too hard in a lot of scenes mm. for me like where it's you know jj was on a mission in this movie to make star trek cool and you know and there's there's some comment by one of the writers i think that was like um star trek is like classical music star wars is like rock and roll we want to make star trek into rock and roll for this movie so basically they want to make it like star wars um but you know this is like jj abrams version of rock and roll and you know <laughs> Which like, is I a, like actually a different kind of music, I think. <laughs> right. Like I like Star emo. Trek. I like Star Trek because it's Star Trek. Like I like Star Trek because it is a little more classical and because it is about these headier themes. And mm. I get it. We're making a big accessible blockbuster for everybody. I'm I like a lot of the rock and roll. I like I like the way the ships are shot in space and how his camera yeah is is zipping around the bridge instead of cutting between crew members 
you know, shouting about uh, incoming torpedoes or this or that. It's a single shot, you know, whipping from person to person, landing on each crew member at just the right moment. I love that visceral energy, you know, so that like I like that he brought that rock and roll to this movie. When the rock and roll feels try hard is when it just feels like how many fist fights are there in this movie and how many fist fights are just <laughs> yeah. between like crew members uh just like randomly deciding to get into a fight because like star trek's future the the future it paints for us is all about like the evolution of humanity like humanity has actually evolved like society has actually gotten more civilized we've like eliminated money like we're not motivated by financial self-interest anymore we are like this really utopian society based on like the further like furthering our knowledge about the universe is like the driving force of why we do things and this movie is like bar fight after bar fight after <laughs> like look at that hot girl walking by look at that like uh look at this Spock. car look at this motorcycle look at this yeah. leather jacket right yeah like beastie <laughs> boys uh like it, it, it's it's so not what is like star trek to me and mm. and even like spock like i get it's a very efficient way to show that that young child spock like is struggling between emotion and logic but like i feel like the only tool in the toolkit is to punch like more punching like like the the, the <laughs> fact that both kirk and spock's like backstories revolve around like punching other people just feels lazy to me like i think spock should feel different than kirk and not also just default to punching when emotional as he does later in the movie as well when kirk's whole mission is to emotionally rile him up to make him relieve his command of the bridge which also feels like a really forced way yeah. to like do a theme thing that's my little rant you know this movie does so <laughs> many things well but i feel like in his attempt to do rock and roll uh jj abrams like pasted on these things into star trek that don't belong there and that do betray i think what makes the franchise special which is it is this different kind of vision of the future where humanity truly has changed and evolved and this is like uh-uh no we're like starfleet academy the all the cadets we're getting into bar fights you know this is not the star trek that i grew up with so it's just I think there was a way to do rock and roll and to make it an exciting uh, movie and to make it accessible and to make it action packed while still retaining a bit more of that spirit of this is about a different kind of future. So, yeah, I mean, I think I read somewhere that Chris Pine was inspired in his performance or maybe it was JJ that was inspired by Top Gun. And mm, so mm, much of it, mm, the early yeah. stuff feels like Top Gun, where it's like so broed out. It's all about like, <laughs> yeah. like a one-upsmanship of like masculinity. And right. yeah, like who's going to be the best pilot? Who's going to be the best captain? And like you sabotage my test in front of the whoever, like <laughs> that whole. Um, when he pulls out an apple. Like, can we ban people from pulling <laughs> random apples out when they're being cocky? Like, I'm so we done with this. We talked about that. We talked about that in A Few Good Men. Because Tom yes. Cruise, again, Tom Cruise is like the king of, like, I am a jerk that's eating apples. Yeah. <laughs> then they did like, it in this Where are the apples too. coming from? Like, Kirk, Kirk had the apple there ready for this moment. <laughs> like, Look, cocky assholes always have. on purpose. <laughs> yeah. They always have, like, three like apples. Right. They just travel with apples yeah. in their pocket. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll add to all this that like it is an interesting, you know, I mean, it, it sounds 
on paper at least, it sounds very disrespectful, right? To say, we identified the thing that we think this franchise is and how it differentiates itself from other similar franchises. Let's not do that, right? <laughs> yeah. Like like that just feels <laughs> yeah. like, like, okay, why is that your philosophy? Um, and I'm thinking classical is an interesting example because people use the term classical to describe multiple eras of the mm-hmm. orchestral period, right? So you have classical and romantic and Baroque and everything. And listen to Beethoven's first, fifth, and ninth And you'll see like the dramatic differences that happen because he sort of bridged that gap. And I feel like if you are identifying Star Trek as classical, then be like, great, Star Trek is and has always been classical. So now, like, how do we how do we bring it into the romantic? How do we bring it into the, you know, not rock and roll, baby? (laughs) Like that just feels right. And you got away with it. You know, you made a you made a good movie, I think. But like it's it just feel again on paper just feels like like what a. What a dick move, basically, <laughs> to be like, <laughs> yeah, we're not going to do the thing that you are. We're just going to do something else. There is like, I think you you may have mentioned something earlier, Michael, but there, there's I feel like there's a little bit of like a what, what's the word that you use? Maybe, I don't know. If, maybe it wasn't even in the podcast. It maybe it was off mic, but um, dirigible. I don't remember. Yeah, <laughs> some, something where it's like like there is actually a level of um, I can't think of the right word. Disrespect. There's, curmudgeonly. It's it's like when you when you actually don't like something like like you're like you're oh, like you're like making it's spiteful. Yeah, or, yeah. This, this, oh, is, this is, is good. Right, it's the right word for it. I'm so ashamed. I feel like I think that's right. No. But, but no? maybe that's kind of in that zone. Okay, I'll put it this way. Phalange. It feels it feels a little bit like J.J. Abrams is ashamed of like the nerdiness of Star Trek. He's ashamed mm. that like it's not right. cool. That like cool kids don't like Star Trek. It's for like the smart nerdy kids. Like that sucks. Like that's not cool. I don't want to be that kid. I want to be the cool kid. And I and I think there is a little bit of that energy in the movie. And it, even in the special features, JJ Abrams is like, yeah, I liked Star Trek. You know, like I I watched it. Um, but like I'm not a huge fan. Like like he he right. kind of admits that he's not even really a person that is very invested in mm. this franchise. Um, but that maybe is part of his motivation to be like, I want to make it a franchise that I'm, that I'm into, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to star Wars it basically. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a part of me that will just forever, uh, cringe a bit at the rock and roll, like overkill in this movie. Um, and, and, but you know, it, it accomplished its mission. It, it reached a broad audience. It brought on board new people, like it was very successful and i think you can't and and the movie as we've said does so many things right and pulls off this incredible feat of being a good soft reboot um so that's why i have like i'm of two minds with this film the the, yeah. the hardcore like trekker part of me uh is like dying inside during part i mean the, the like willy wonka scene where Scotty right. is like in the tubes i'm like kill me now yeah. um but or, or even like you know hoff you know monster chase you know rolling down a giant mountain oh, of snow yeah. like, the cloverfield monster yeah like i don't need, <laughs> totally i don't need this in my star trek um, but then there are so many other scenes. I mean, this, the theme, Michael Giacchino's theme, when it comes yeah. on, when like the enterprise is revealed, like that feels so Star Trek and it's mm. so grand and wonderful. Um, so yeah, it, it's, 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 I'm very divided every time I watch this movie and I ultimately have a really good time 
and overall love that it exists and love that I got to see it in theaters and have that experience. But all the punching just. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I'll, I'll quickly add that, like, there is something respectable about saying, like, I want to take the nerdy kid who got picked on in high school and turn him into to the cool guy. Right. Sure. You know, and, and I think that like <laughs> now everybody, th- everybody likes Star Trek now. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that like on one hand, it's like you want your thing to be just for you. But on the other hand, it's like you want other people to appreciate your thing. Right. And it's like you kind of we're always going to walk that line with the things that we love. We we want people to appreciate it, but we also don't want too many people to like it because we want it to be our thing. And it does help that it's an alternate reality that truly does help, right. I think, because it's like mm. this is a different universe, literally. Like we're not even pretending this is a part of the universe you're used to. Um, and so in, in, in like an in-universe way, that does help me accept it as just in this alternate universe, everybody punches each other. That's what they do <laughs> in Starfleet. Now I'm just imagining JJ taking all of the lunch money of all of the bullies who ever picked on <laughs> a Star Trek nerd. It's like, I will take your lunch money and your lunch money. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and I feel like to kind of wrap this up, I think it is uh, exactly like we're saying it was successful in doing what it needed to do and maybe opened the doors to more sci-fi things that we wouldn't have had. I was just looking at the box office numbers and Star Trek Nemesis, the Star Trek movie that came out before this had a budget of 60 million and made 67 million worldwide. <laughs> so plug in marketing. Was, yeah. Not I mean, so much. So no. The Star Trek movies that preceded this were not good. Right. Yeah. We're not good. <laughs> and well, and, so and was... Tom Hardy was not uh, drawing the audiences quite yet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah very young, very different looking Tom Hardy. Yeah. He had no idea. Nemesis in wow. Nemesis. But Ooh. yeah. So then it's like, here's $150 million to make Star Trek. You better get us our money back sure, and right. it did like almost 400 million worldwide and now we have lots of sci-fi so art commerce at war uh-huh. that's probably a good star trek episode somewhere that you can watch as a palate cleanser for the <laughs> punching of 2009 <laughs> star trek why don't we go around and say what lessons we're going to take from star trek alex want to start us off sure so I was watching, I have the Blu-ray of this movie, and I was watching the special features in preparation for the podcast. I was really delighted to see there's a whole featurette on Ben Burt, who they brought in to do like original Yay! sounds for this movie. And it was really cool because Ben Burt said that he, you know, when he was doing Star Wars, he was thinking about original series Star Trek and the kinds of sounds on the ship uh, when he was designing, you know, laser sounds and mm. just general kind of like new original sounds for the Star Wars universe. So it was like a full circle thing for him to come back and do this like upgraded version of Star Trek sounds for the reboot. Um, and and I, I think there's something about, you know, we talk, I was talking about these things that don't feel Star Trek to me, but so much of the sound in this movie on a subconscious level just tells me, no, 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 you are in a Star Trek universe. Like this you're in a safe place. There's there's these just little, you know, the transporter sounds, the kind of almost melodic uh, kind of chimes and dings and button, you know, mm-hmm. things. They're very Star Trek. And, 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 and I think Ben Burt really brings an identity to this film that wouldn't have been there if you didn't have somebody like him, like taking the time to go back and like find analog like, oscillators and like mm. recreate those sounds, but kind of upgrade them for... 2009 film so i think it's just a great lesson in if you were going to 
take a beloved franchise that has a very strong like audiovisual language that is a way to kind of bridge the gap if you are you know rock and rolling it uh you know <laughs> the sound which is mostly unconscious can be a way to kind of keep me embedded in in that universe that i love um and i think they really did accomplish that in this movie there's there's the kind of it sounds almost dated there's there, there are almost like submarine sonar sounds as we're as we're like flying through space and things that just kind of harken back to that original series like 60s sci-fi um but it but it doesn't feel terribly out of place and it feels kind of natural in this updated film uh so i think the sound is just a great way to to keep mm. us trekkers happy <laughs> i'll put the link in the show notes but one of the first videos that i worked on on the series that i've mentioned before soundworks collection with our friend michael coleman was on the sound of star trek and interviewing oh, no. the whole mm. sound team and yeah ben did some work on it but like the whole team did so so much work to like make it uh sound the way it did and so that was when i first trips to la also was like getting to come down <laughs> here and like interview the sound team of star trek and i was like nerding out and I'm like this is amazing well and yeah. this movie was nominated for an oscar for sound editing and for sound mixing um so i agree i think the soundscape is very like i mean action movies tend to get nominated but i think that this one is special yeah, cause yeah. E- even like the ships have identities like the you know yeah. the, the giant mm. nero like crazy octopus ship like has <laughs> Like this ineffable sound whenever it's around, you know, and I think that that's that's what you want from these big blockbusters. Just yeah, like that kind of attention to detail. Totally. Yeah. Cool. Brian, what's your lesson? I think this is a good example of a movie where things going wrong, uh, you know, showing how th- things going wrong can make for either fun or tense conflict. Right. And sometimes it is the Augustus Gloop tube thing which is funny because his little friend is deep is played by deep roy who played all the oompa loompas in the tim burton <laughs> uh charlie and chocolate factory um but uh but you know other times it's oh now there's a whole new layer of tension that or or again fun like it can be either um that we weren't expecting uh you know there, there's just many moments in this movie of like according to my calculations this box is full of sandwiches nope it's dynamite run um and <laughs> I, uh, I recently got a note on a script that I was writing, which by design, the script has doesn't have a ton of big conflict in it. Right. But um, but the, it was like one of my friends was just like, but I still want things to go wrong. I still want there to. And then once I incorporated that once I was like, once if what if it happens that they don't get the thing here, you know, then suddenly I became reinvigorated as the writer going like, Ooh, what does happen if that, if that thing doesn't happen. Right. So now, now how do these characters get out of this bind or now what happens next and ended up making my script that much better, but also made me realize that that's like a great tool that you have is just for anything in your script, any plot point, just ask yourself what happens if this doesn't go according to plan basically you know and i think that there's you can be too much of that right where it feels like now it's just everything is always going wrong and then some movies you start to feel that you start to feel kind of fatigued by uh, nothing ever goes right you know how many times in empire strikes back does the Millennium falcon not not go <laughs> nothing which against do, that which they do in this movie as well <laughs> right yeah, yeah. They do. um so so this movie has a lot of it and and you know you could argue it's too much but uh but i think that it is a really good it is a really good thing to remind yourself as you're writing is ask yourself what happens if something doesn't go according to plan where does that put you or does that put your characters 
Yeah. Yeah. And maybe I'll just kind of piggyback off of that because that was one of the lessons I was going to, I was considering, but I feel like you've set it up so nicely that I think that is to continue on that, that it's things going wrong and that within each sequence of things going wrong, yeah, there's always something ups the stakes, which is kind Mm. of embedded in what you're saying. But I feel like there are two, uh, like examples that came to mind. One is uh, not great, but like even in the beginning when young Kirk is stealing the car, right? He's being chased by a police uh, flying copter Droid? dude with yeah. a weird <laughs> face Robot thing. mask. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so like that's already bad. Uh, and so he turns off road, but now he's going toward a cliff like twist. Now it's even worse. How's he going to get out of it? And it's like, you know, building up the stakes even further the most literal and probably lamest but clear example is the the hoth planet where kirk is like running away from a monster yeah and then halfway through there's yep. a bigger monster that comes and now he has to run away from this bigger monster there's always a bigger, bigger fish threat. right exactly <laughs> Hours, the, the phantom menace moment but I, I do think that that structure in all of these scenes is what keeps the momentum going and keeps the stakes building um is yeah as you're saying brian things going wrong and like building on each other so that it's just always there's movement happening dramatically and it's fun to watch most of the time Mm -hmm. well another example of that is just you know when uh vulcan is being destroyed yeah the the stakes rise so quickly it's like wait the planet's going to just be imploded in like you know 10 minutes oh crap spock your family is on the surface but they're in a place we can't beat them out of like, oh, you, we can't be beaming people if they're moving. So if people are falling, they're dead. Like, it, it, there's all these stakes just rising and rising and rising very quickly. And it's like the worst case scenario after worst case scenario. And, and it makes for incredibly compelling sequences. Yeah. 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 Trisha, what's your sure. lesson? Sure. So um, my lesson has to do with the array of supporting characters here and it's a lot of do's and and like at least one don't um and like the moment that you guys pointed out about like oh the ship the millennium falcon is like that moment where you know sulu goes to punch it and it doesn't punch um he can't take off with the fleet and it's the flagship also which i love which is like so this is your most important ship it's the enterprise gotcha the admiral's on board all the other this is the big one and we put this this kid in here, a bunch of kids actually. And uh, (laughs) like, there's a senior doctor, he's dead bones. It's you. Like they're all just recruits. Right. Um, which I think, you know, would be in a naval novel. (laughs) That would be a bigger deal. (laughs) It's like all these midshipmen are now lieutenants anyway. Um, but yeah, the, the character design of all of the supporting characters is really is unfolded really carefully to create moments for each of them that aren't just character moments. Like we talk about efficient storytelling. The thing with Sulu ends up having consequences, right? They're a little bit late to that battle uh, or to whatever is happening, answering that distress call on Vulcan. And as a result, they're not immediately wiped out in the battle. And that gives them an opportunity. Well, it gives Chris Pine an opportunity to like intervene and tell them that it's a trap, which he knows automatically. But that little few seconds of delay do matter. But and at the same time, within the scene itself, they're telling us something critical about Sulu, right, where we he has to start to explain what he's doing here. Like, I am a pilot, but I wasn't actually supposed to be the guy today. Um, 
And then, you know, Chekhov has his moment where he's like, I'm going to give the <laughs> briefing, <Yeah>. briefing, <laughs> the, the hologram talk. Um, and he does his thing. It's overall, you know, and I think it was uh, in Die Hard. We talked about col- the colorfulness of supporting characters and how the more colorful they are, the longer they usually make it in the movie. So if these are people we need to care about forever, they should probably be pretty colorful and then pretty dimensional as well, right? If something doesn't go right for a character, as you're pointing out, Brian, that automatically gets us onto their side where we automatically start to think of them as an underdog um, or as someone we want to see succeed. When something goes wrong for somebody, you want them to succeed. Even when someone has an incredible amount of swagger, like Kirk, you know, we see when we meet him in the bar, he's like, Oh, four guys, please, I'll take you all on. If he had actually, like, kicked the crap out of those guys, we wouldn't like him, right? Right. Mm, but mm-hmm. the fact that he gets his butt handed to him, we're like, yeah, okay, yes, we like you because you talk a big game, but you're vulnerable in the same way that a lot of these other characters are. And it's the same thing with Spock, right? Spock threw away his whole future and disappointed his father because he had a moment of emotion when somebody was like, whoa, you're half human. Um so the fallibility, I think, of of characters, in addition to just overall colorfulness and bigness, is this movie is sort of a masterclass in that. Because that is what the movie is primarily concerned with, is creating, like, here are all the people that we want you to care about. My don't in this is Uhura. And the way that the movie treats her generally is not so much in the writing of her or in Zoe Saldana's performance, it has to do with her relationship to the rest of the characters, which is it's the movie starts off by another Top Gun reference echoing like here she is as a love interest for Kirk in this bar, potentially. And, you know, we like Kirk. He punches these guys out or tries to in defense of her or something. And She's set up there as a love interest. She's set up in a few other places as a love interest. And then when the movie subverts our expectations about that and, you know, sets her up instead as a love interest for Spock, it definitely doesn't do enough work, I don't think, to set up the Uhura and Spock relationship. And then also that's kind of where we leave Uhura. Like, that's it. Like, that's Mm. like the last minute she gets. Um, (laughs) It's like, and now you're with Spock. Now that's all for you. All you have is scenes with Spock now. Goodbye. Sorry. And even the thing with like, okay, so she doesn't want to be with Kirk. So the the scene where Kirk also acknowledges that feels like it's too small and doesn't make any sense. It's just a confusing and dated way to uh, treat the lone woman in this cast, um, aside from Winona Ryder. <laughs> right. Surprise <laughs> brief Winona Ryder. No. Yeah. Right. Also dead. Um, so anyway, it just, it, it plays into sort of dated stereotypes and then tries to subvert them, but with so little underpinning that it feels almost sloppy as like a subversion. Like, I wish there were more to the subversion that made it feel really earned and interesting. Like, I feel like there was a missed opportunity with her. Well, cause I, I think if you're going to have this twist of like, oh, she's with Spock actually, you know, I I want to understand why, why? they're together. And like when did what they, they meet? What, what happened? their thing is? I mean, I think there's an implication that like she was training under him at Starfleet Academy because he's like, I don't want to look like I was favoring you. But yeah, I just I just feel like from that point on, they're like 
two three scenes together she's just kind of like holding his face and kissing him and yep. like that's all we know about their relationship and yeah that could have been a really interesting relationship like what is it like dating a vulcan like that might not be easy that might be kind of odd actually and instead it's just kind of a flat one-dimensional i don't know passionless thing <laughs> yeah i'm here for you i love you oh you don't have feelings okay yeah <laughs> Right. Yeah, there's not even conflict in his in inability. Fairness, to my recollection, yeah. I think that the next couple of movies really do dive into this, but it is just a right. shame yeah. that it, it does in in the absolutely stuffed to the gillsness of this movie, that relationship gets completely lost. And so it's like, I wish you'd pick one or the other almost. Like if she's gonna be no bigger of a part than Chekhov or Scotty, then that's okay. Like, do that if you must. Or, like, make her a full-fledged, you know, three-dimensional character that has real motivations that we get to see, that we get to follow um, and track and, and keep score of and care about. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and like you said, I, I think a lot of it is, uh, yeah, just this overwhelming feeling of datedness is at least yeah. how, how it felt when I was watching it. Because I think, I, you know, I remember at the time it being like somewhat remarkable that it's like, oh, there is like a woman of color as part of the main cast and like, oh, an interracial, like they're like kissing on screen. 2009, that like, still felt remarkable. <laughs> of course I mean, it did. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it did. Like, yeah. And like Sulu, like an yep. Asian American getting like a hero moment and an action. Like, so right, I feel like right. for the time there were progressive things to be in a big blockbuster that has to play all over the world and stuff. And so it is disappointing that we weren't further along. And I think it is good yeah. that it, this feels so dated now. Sure. Yeah. Um, but I do feel like those that's kind of part of the credit to the original Star Trek, that those elements were in there so yeah. that they had to be maintained and then mm -hmm. kind of doubled down on by the people. Admittedly, doubled down on them at that point wasn't doing a whole lot, but it was more than a lot of things were doing. So, yeah. Anyway, it's all that. Interesting. Yeah, I, I for mean, sure. Nichelle Nichols and George Takei both talk about how their characters way back on the original show to them. They were like, we are representing our entire people, right. basically, yeah. because yeah. there's so few of us, you know, on television at all, especially in something like like a sci fi show, you know. Um, so, yeah, there is there is still that happening. And and as you said, there are ways in which we could have and still could be further along from 1966 when the original <laughs> show aired. Right. For sure. Yeah. Awesome. OK, so. I think I've just decided that next week we should talk about the hunt for red October. So I'm just okay. going to say that out loud now. I love it. Let's make it happen. To commit yeah. to it. Yes. Uh, anyone who's listening to this that hasn't seen it and is afraid of it. Cause it's like nineties. You Alex. Oh, Alex <laughs> well, Michael, does that make you oh, a bad really? friend? These past I don't, 20 I don't years. Know. I think it makes Alex a bad. <laughs> Why friend. haven't you ever made Whoa. me watch it? <laughs> wow. I am surprised. Okay. Well, here it was we go. never now shown to me as a child. I never saw it. If you haven't seen it, like I'm excited. Alex, you were, I'm really yeah, excited. you can go on this journey with Alex. Uh, it's great. It's a lot of fun. Yay. It's going to be 90s-ish, but you'll get through it. Young Alec Baldwin is, you know, fun to look at. So there's lots of, uh, there's lots of good stuff in it. It's so good. Anyway, so next week, Hunt for Red October. In the meantime, to finish up this episode, what have you guys been watching recently? Trisha, what have you been watching recently? 
Yeah, so I decided to finally go back and uh, fix a missing piece of my Spielberg filmography. I was missing a piece, and it was 1971's Duel. It was Mm. Spielberg's first movie. I had not seen it. I have been beating myself up about it for several decades now, and I just decided to go and watch it. It is a TV movie, for those that don't know, from 1971, about a man who is menaced by an evil, faceless truck driver. Really, he's just menaced by a truck. Yeah. To be clear, um, <laughs> the, movie, the movie stars um, Dennis Weaver as this guy. He's it, it's it's also very California. He's like, I'm just going to drive up and over the grapevine in my like little sedan or whatever. Um, although it was the 70s, it was a very big car. But he drives up and then for no reason, a truck driver decides to just like try to kill him, basically. And it it's sort of a really simple, almost Hitchcockian premise, right? Like what if you, what if you somehow enraged a stranger so much that they tried to kill you? And what would you do if you couldn't get away from that person? Right? Like if you were in a remote area and suddenly somebody driving a semi truck was trying to kill you, um, on just out on the open road. And it's a, you know, it's a very short thriller. Um, but I really, really liked it. Like it doesn't, I've told you the whole plot, um, I'm going to tell you how it ends, but there you go. Yeah, that'll get you 85% of the way through the movie. It's nice to see from a filmmaker that you admire kind of where they started with like a practice movie in some ways, mm-hmm. you know, um, Spielberg called himself like a shark and truck director for like a long time because, <laughs> you know, he made Jaws in 75 after this and, um, there's a lot of similarities. So if you like Jaws, you will like Duel, I promise. Um, and I really, really enjoyed it. Nice. Okay. And so that has completed your Spielberg filmography. Yep. I haven't missed any others. I've seen them all. You know West Side Story, the new one? No, actually, I haven't seen that one. And uh, it's killing me, but it's, I want to go see it in the theater. Yeah. I want to go see it in the theater. It will be out on streaming by the time this episode has aired. So I know that. Us in the past. I'm just saying, us in the past <sighs> still have to go to the theater to see it. I'm trying to listening. do right by it. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Uh, Brian, what have you been watching recently? So I watched Flea. Um, oh. L-E-E, which you've really probably heard of recently because mm-hmm. it is the first film to be nominated uh, for Oscar for, uh, for the Academy Award for documentary and foreign language film and animated feature. And part of the reason for that is because most films aren't all three of those things <laughs> at once. But part of the reason for that is because it's an amazing movie. Um, it is a it is a documentary. It's a story of a, a gay man who fled from Afghanistan to Denmark as a refugee. Um, but it's it's being told the director is a friend of this character and he is telling him his story, basically. That is animated. So you're hearing the audio of what it is as you are watching him, animated him saying these things. Then we flash back to the past, which is also animated. The animation is beautiful. Sometimes it changes style, but for very specific reasons and just gorgeous. Um, And then there are times where they actually do have some voice actors come in to like act out a little scene that is being narrated about. And then every once in a while, there is live action sort of um, legacy doc uh, historical footage, basically what was going on at the time. But 
it's so seamlessly integrated that it doesn't feel like you're why I feel like I'm trying to describe tick tick boom again. Um, but, um, but, but the, the, the reason I'm sort of saying it's this, but it's also this is because like, I've never seen a movie that that's like this, you know, I've seen, uh, documentaries that kind of use audio and then animate something over it. But this is like the, the present day thing is animated. So you're seeing him like talk to his husband and they're like looking for a house and this kind of thing. And it's like, that's just animated. Um, and it all comes together beautifully. This, the whole story, it's kind of like him telling the story is a, is a bit of catharsis for himself. He's never really told his story before. So it's not just the story itself. That's fascinating, but it's also the present day, him actually saying this out loud for the first time and, and saying it to his friend and, and everything. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's beautiful. Flea, check it out. It's going to win somewhere between one and three awards. If it wins zero, I will, you know, do something. <laughs> I think it's on Hulu now or mm. somebody tweeted that. So I'm excited nice. to, to see it. Nice. Cool. Very cool. All right. Uh, Alex, what have you been watching? So I watched Kimmy, which is the new mm. Steven Soderbergh oh, movie. Oh, I want to see that. It's on HBO Max. Um, yeah, and it's it's great. It's great fun. It, Soderbergh calls it a Saturday night bottle of wine movie. <laughs> that is a quote from him. Um, and that is exactly what it is. It's it's a 90-minute, nice. you know, kind of 90s thriller, uh, contained thriller starring Zoe Kravitz. And uh, it you know, the, the idea is that she is somebody who listens to all of the like audio recordings that couldn't be interpreted by Kimmy, which is kind of like an Alexa or Siri type device. Mm -hmm. And she, her job is just to like correct the errors, but then she overhears what sounds like a crime. Um, so that's, that's the premise, but it also has kind of a great present moment, uh, pandemic edge to it. Cause it takes place in a reality where COVID-19 happened. Mm. So she's been also like shut in her place forever. And she also has like kind of like OCD and this is I made it all worse. So it, it, it takes advantage of all of the weirdness of our present time and puts it into this like contained thriller uh, really beautifully written by David Kep. Um, so mm. it's it's, you know, nice. he also did Panic Room. It's very much in the same kind of. Yeah. He did a mold. few other movies as well. But yeah, course, yeah. <laughs> Contain, <laughs> containment but is yeah. something he does do. It's a dinosaur um, in one of his movies, right? I think so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. OK. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I would get a bottle of wine and watch Kimmy. <laughs> Sounds Sold. Great. Yeah. <laughs> On a Saturday. I'm in. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Michael, awesome. what about you? Mine is not too far away from that. So I've watched the uh the Netflix show, The Woman in the House Across the Street from the Girl in the Window. <laughs> <laughs> and I loved it. <laughs> so it's like it's you know, it's clearly like a you know, kind of a spoof satire on these kind of like melodramatic you know, contained thrillers based like like if what lies beneath and like the ring was like a dark comedy essentially. Mm. And so it's like Kristen Bell plays this woman who yeah, she lives alone because there's this tragedy where like her daughter died, uh, and her her husband left her, the, the you know, divorce happened, blah blah blah. And she thinks she sees a murder across the street. Uh, in this other house. Yeah, it's just like it packs all the tropes that you would expect from a story like this into it where like she first meets the neighbor and he's a 
a single dad uh, that has a daughter and the daughter loves her and you know his wife died also in a horrific tra like tragic way like all of the it's just it's so over the top and uh it's so great also the guy that plays the husband sounds just like mark brown from game makers toolkit it's really weird but yeah I, it's been a while since i've seen something that is using film language to be like self-referential where it like it mm -hmm. knows the tropes of a thing and just the way something is shot like my one of my favorite moments is you know when she's getting paranoid about like the neighbors and somebody's watching her she goes to her car and gets in the car and it's that that moment that happens in movies where she's gonna back out of the driveway and then stops because suddenly there's someone outside the car window like in a spooky jump scare way and so it does that twice in a row where there's just like two people waiting in the driveway like <laughs> to scare her to stop them. uh anyway so it's just it's super silly uh but it's lots of fun i thought and kristen bell is hilarious and really carries it and like somehow manages to deliver lines in a believable way but also in a way that's making fun of like that delivery mm. uh anyway so i think it's also probably a nice saturday night glass of wine uh series of episodes to watch bottle sized glass of wine right because that's what's on <laughs> right <laughs> yeah. yes exactly she's always pouring an entire <laughs> glass of wine into or yeah, yeah an entire bottle yeah. of wine into a huge glass and right. <laughs> I, mean, I, I like that there was a whole thing that people like didn't get it was a spoof yeah and like, first of all right if you watch something with that title like don't why would right, you yeah. watch something right. with that title thinking it wasn't a joke <laughs> right but it's like right. yeah gone girl woman in the window woman the girl in the train whatever it's like it's right. like yeah yeah okay <laughs> but it, but Not it's also hard. like to succeed at what it's doing it also has to have a mystery at the heart of it and so uh -huh. it's like yeah. absurd but it is enough to be like well, wait what did happen to As the, the girl straight. in yeah. the house across the window well, and, and, the... and it matches the aesthetics you know so if you're not tuned in to the idea right. of like satire on all these levels it's like but wait a minute it looks like a serious thing Probably. yeah but i but i love a... i love good satire like that i gotta watch yeah that. i think you'd like it a lot Alex. yeah yeah. Nice. Okay. Well, this has been our uh, episode on the 2009 Star Trek. This was, uh, yeah, a lot of fun to revisit this weird period in film history. I think yeah. is also what I'm coming to realize is that things were shifting. Yeah. And TV was about to explode. Also, like I, I was remembering, like this is like early Mad Men, like early, like Breaking Bad, AMC, like the the whole TV Renaissance thing was like just starting around this era and so like t like movies could still be up in the airs and have this nuance and marvel hadn't become a thing right like the iron yeah. man it just came out so it was like it was the last moment we had before like the era that we're in now You're right we were so <laughs> the young storm broke so innocent <laughs> right. also speaking of 2009 sci-fi movies starring zoe saldana we apparently are getting an Avatar sequel this year, so that'll be Ooh. an interesting Are we really thing. this year? Is this yeah. happening? Do we know? Yeah. That's what they say. I don't okay. know if anyone wants it, but it's there. Well, I think we have to talk about Avatar this year, though. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, waiting this long somehow was the right thing to make me be like, yeah, I want to go yeah, watch sure. an Avatar yeah. movie. <laughs> right. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Uh, well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, thank you, as always, to the patrons that make this show possible. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayotos. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet, say hi, and we will see you next week for The Hunt for Red Octavius. <laughs>
It's the best conclusion to an episode ever. I'm so excited. Bye, everybody. Disengage. Bye.